The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor-teacher, Harry Reeder. Now, if you will, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus, and, um, and as you're turning there, uh, we're going to take a look at our last biblical portrait, our last biblical biography, portrait of the Old, um, of the Old and New Testament. And what I've done is I've gone to Old and New, but what I've done is I have purposefully, go to Exodus chapter 2, by the way, and what I've done is I have purposefully tried to choose individuals that don't really get top billing in our preaching and in our teaching. I mean, everybody knows about David, but what about Nathan? Everybody knows about Moses, but what about Miriam? Uh, everybody knows about some of these extraordinary people, but what about the background characters? What about those 12 judges that are given to us in the book of Judges that are setting up the transition from entering the promised land under Joshua to the establishment of the promised kingdom from Genesis 17? We looked at Samson last week. We've looked at, uh, at Gideon. We've looked at Deborah. And uh, so we've, that's some of the things that I've been trying to do, and hopefully to kind of encourage you to see the, the uh, powerful work of the gospel of Christ in the lives of these individuals as he worked in their life and through their life, and, uh, and, that, they could, and that they could sense what God was doing. And we got the good chance to look at them. The phrase I like to use is warts and pimples and all. They're not cosmetically Airbrushed in the Bible. God is so honest in his word about those who he has saved by grace. They're not presented as, um, as saints who have no, uh, who have no, um, no evidences of sin. On the contrary, not only the sin before they're converted, but even the indwelling sin that they deal with. And tonight is no exception. Miriam is another one for us to look at. As we look at her, and this is, I think, really kind of, um, I wish I could tell you I planned it this way, but it's kind of a good one to end with in the anticipation of the Advent season. What was uh, the name of the chosen mother of Jesus? What was her name? I love it. Y'all are so scared. You're going to say the wrong thing. This this is not hard. What's her name? Mary. Very good. Very good. Mary. Have you ever noticed in the New Testament there seems to be an abundance of Marys? I mean, Mary, wife of Cleopas. Mary Magdalene. The, quote, other Mary. I mean, there's Marys. In fact, if I count correctly, there are seven in the Bible. Uh, that I know of, Mary's. Well, Mary is the derivative name from Miriam. 
So we're actually looking at the woman of the Old Testament that many, in the days that Jesus came, that her name became the name that so many chose to give to their daughters, Mary. That would be the derivative from Miriam. Now, why did they do that? Some would say, well, it's because there was a sense of expectancy of the Messiah in the day that the Messiah came. And everyone wanted their daughter to be that chosen one who would bear the promise that was given to Eve that she would have a seed. And that seed would be the victorious Messiah who would conquer his enemies. And, and that there was this anticipation. And, and everyone, when they were giving their daughters names, were wanting to position them. And when you look back to the Old Testament, that one name of a godly woman that stands out would have been Miriam. I mean, you can see the association, can't you, quickly? Because in the Old Testament, there were numerous types of Christ, right? There was Moses was a type of Christ, and Abraham was a type of Christ, and and um, there was David as a type of Christ. Well, the most profound type of Christ in the Old Testament would have been Moses himself. Why? Well, Moses is a prophet, Moses comes from the tribe of the priest, Levi. Moses was the leader, almost not formally, but functioning like a king. He is the closest of all the Old Testament types of the three offices that the Messiah would fulfill, prophet, priest, and king. And he is the first author of the word inscripturated that points to the word incarnate, Christ. And who was his sister? Miriam. And so in some sense, she begins to take on significance, not only because of what she did, but because of her relationship to Moses. You see, don't you remember when John the Baptist is asking about Jesus? Are you, I mean, when John the Baptist, I'm sorry, when John the Baptist is being asked if he's the Messiah, remember the questions that were put to him? Are you the prophet? Meaning the prophet, the greater prophet than Moses. So Moses had this high standing, and that automatically brings high standing to Aaron and high standing to Miriam. So she is highly esteemed out of the Old Testament, and, and, uh, and it's seen in all of these names, and it's seen in how she is presented and how she is valued. So where does she come from? What is her origin? Well, take your Bibles and go with me, to, and we'll take you to about three texts tonight. Go with me to uh, chapter 2 and verse 1 of Exodus. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife... A Levite woman. So both the man and the woman are out of the tribe of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds of the riverbank. And this child that's in this basket, this ark, covered with pitch, 
wrapped in it, his sister of this child stood at a distance with a very specific purpose. What's going to happen to him? To know what would be done to him. Now stop right there just for a moment. Let's set this and make sure we have it in context. Pharaoh, this is one who doesn't know anything of Joseph. Now we have gone into the 400 years of slavery and 400 years of oppression of God's covenant people as prophesied in Genesis chapter 15. And here they are, and they are now seen almost like a fifth column by Pharaoh. He sees them as, he sees them as, um, untrustworthy. He sees them as something to be concerned about. Why? Well, they've got some distant cousins that are just outside of Egypt that are making warlike moves against Egypt. And secondly, those would be descendants from Abraham's son Ishmael. And so they have some distant cousins. And secondly, he says they have multiplied. They have become so numerous. Why, there are so many of them. If they were to rise up, they would destroy us. So he decides to take on a way. He was trying to establish some policies to control them. The first thing he established was infanticide. That the Hebrew male child would be killed. That would be the way to take care of future warriors, demoralize families. But uh, in the providence of God, that didn't work because God had some uh, had his own uh, servants. And that was the Egyptian. Uh, that was the midwives of the Hebrews that would um, they said, you know, it's amazing. We can't kill that. We can't do what you want us to do, Pharaoh, because these Hebrew women are so vigorous we get word they're going to have a child. And by the time we get there, they've got the child and gone on. They're more vigorous than the Egyptian women. And uh, they just have children. There's a little bit of a... You're looking pretty serious here. But uh, there's a little bit of some humor in that presentation. And, uh, and, and, and But I think there may be some... Everybody accuses the midwives of lying here. There may be an element of truth to this. I mean, you've got... A couple of million people giving birth and you got a couple of midwives. Well, how are you going to get around to all of them on time? And so they and then they may have made sure that they kind of overscheduled a little bit so that they couldn't get there on time. And so, you know, the Egyptian midwives are honored and they show up being honored uh, in the New Testament because they would not participate in this edict of infanticide. Well, then he goes from infanticide to genocide. He enacts a second policy, which is when the male child is born, as soon as you see the male child, you have to throw them into the Nile River. You have to put them death and you have to put them into the Nile River. That's what he has. That's what Pharaoh has done to control this population. So what has happened is, well, Moses has been born in uh, this Levite marriage and um, uh, this, this family of the fa- in the tribe of Levi. And the child has been raised to a certain point, And now th- there's nothing else to do but to trust the, guy, uh, the, the child to God's providence. And we won't throw him into the Nile River, but we will place him into the river. And we will place him in the security of this ark 
this that has been fashioned from the reeds and from the bulrushes. And now, what's going to happen to him? He's now been placed in the hands of God's providence. And they send out his sister to to uh, see what was going to happen. And so the sister is watching over the events. And what happens? Well, here's what happens. Now, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. And while her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds. And she sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Can you imagine the bravery of that moment? This sister of Moses, unnamed thus far in the text, is there to watch and see what happens, but she doesn't stop with watching to see what happens. She intervenes. This could be at the risk of her life. But she intervenes, and she comes when, and this Pharaoh's daughter has been moved upon by the common grace of God to, to enact mercy for the child. And then she comes and she says to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child, that would be the mother, took the child and nursed him, and took the child away and, nur- and nursed him for me, and took the child away and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. And that's looking at a, the der- derivation uh, of his name, Moses. Well, just a couple of thoughts here. So you see the sovereign hand of God. It's not just anybody that finds, uh, but Pharaoh's daughter that finds um, Moses in this ark, in the bulrushes that cover the side of the Nile River. Boy, wasn't that lucky. Joke. Laugh. Here you see the sovereign hand of God's providence. Not only would she be willing to disobey her father, she's in a position that it would be difficult for the father to reject what his daughter wants. And so she decides she wants this child, but she doesn't want to be bothered. So she wants the child at a certain time, but not right now. You know, those initial years are not that much fun. So why don't, uh, what will I do about this? Well, up steps the sister of Moses. And she comes up and says, Hey, I've got an idea. Would you like for me to find a Hebrew woman to nurse this child for you? That is a good idea. Why don't you go, and when that child gets old enough, she can bring her back. In the meantime, I'll uh, pay her the wages. In other words, what is she doing? She's setting up foster care. But the thing is, is the foster care is the actual parents. And not only that, 
Not only is the decree of Pharaoh not going to be carried out, Moses being killed by a genocidal act, but Pharaoh, he's going to be raised by Pharaoh's daughter's finances that are going to undergird uh, the um, who are going to undergird Moses' family as his mother will nurse him, Mir- uh, the sister will attend to him, and the father says, "And where is this money coming from?" Oh, you wouldn't believe how this one happened. Do y'all get see something that's going to happen? Moses is going to grow up, right? God's going to call him to do what? Lead the people out. And when they lead the people out by God's strong hand, and then Pharaoh drives them out, what else happens? The Egyptians pour forth the gold, the silver, and the clothing. The picture of the redemption of God's people through the deliverer in his redemption and in his rescue. And the plunder of the Egyptians doesn't begin Eighty years later, the plunder of the Egyptian begins right now. As Pharaoh's treasury is being used to undergird the raising of this child. And so the child is going to grow up in the care of his mother. And and the Egyptian family, Pharaoh, who had given the edict to kill him, is going to be supporting him. Amazingly, when this Moses leads them out... There will be Egyptian resources that will be poured into the wagons of the people as they're leaving, from which a tabernacle will be built, from which they will be sustained on a journey to the promised land. God does amazing things in how he accomplishes his purposes. And God, who does this, loves to use leadership. And the sister of Moses is exercising leadership. All we know that she was told to do was to watch and see what happens. But when the moment came, she stepped up to a place of danger, personal vulnerability, and she exercises leadership that puts into motion what is going to be the education And the development of the young man, Moses, who will eventually become the man God uses to bring judgment on Egypt and the people of God to be set free to worship the Lord and be taken to the promised land. Well, who is this sister? She is unnamed to this point. Who could this sister possibly be? Would you take your Bibles and go with me to Exodus Go with me to Exodus chapter um, uh, chapter uh, 15, Exodus chapter 15. We're already out. The Exodus has taken place. The plagues have, have been placed upon them. The Exodus has taken place. And even a greater miracle has been seen with the deliverance of the people of God through the Red Sea. And when they get on the other side of the sea, they begin to worship the Lord. And the song of Moses is given to us in Exodus chapter 15. But then we find out that when the song of Moses is being played, 
that we see that there is a leader among them, a woman who is a leader. Look with me in Exodus chapter 15, and um, you see the song of Moses that goes down to verse 18 and giving praise to God, and then pick up at verse 19. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, and she picks up on the line from the Song of Moses, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown are hurled, are cast into the sea. Now stop and think about this just a moment. This is kind of side, this is a sidebar, all right? The people of Israel went through on dry ground, right? The Egyptian army followed them. And then the Lord brought the waters that were like a wall on both sides through which the people had been protected while they walked through on dry ground. He then collapsed the waters and he covered over the Egyptians, correct? Well, where's this hurling? Where is this throwing? Where is this casting? Yet that's what's said in Exodus 15. Horse and rider are cast into the sea. The Lord hurled them into the sea. Later on in the psalmist, the same language is going to be used. Hurled or cast into the sea. Folks, there's a little sidebar that's going on here you need to see. Uh, The first thing is this. In Hebrew cosmology, in Hebrew cosmology, rivers and springs represent life. River of life. The springs of life. Seas represent evil and its consequences. The roaring, foaming sea with its waves of destruction. So, for instance, when the demoniacs, when the demons ask Jesus, don't don't cast us away, Uh, send us to the pigs. And Jesus permitted them. We kind of read that and think Jesus is being a nice, you know, southern gentleman here. Okay, well, you can have some pig. You want to go over there and stay with the pigs a while. No, he sends them to the pigs. And the pigs are the unclean animals that are sent over the slope into the Sea, which is the abyss. That is the door to the abyss of everlasting torment. That was a declaration of a sovereign God who is sending them to the judgment that the sins demand under the holy righteousness of God. And the reason why They don't hide it. Yes, the waters covered them over. But the language is hurling them because it was by the sovereign hand of God that Pharaoh's heart had been hardened to follow them into the sea. There he was 
hurling them into the sea. And when the waters come over them, he is bringing judgment upon them. And what is the picture? The picture is the day of judgment. When the scriptures tell us. And that's why I don't use. I know a lot of people do this. That, well, you didn't want God in life. And hell is what you want, which is separation from God. You separated from God in life. Well, now you get what you want. Nobody will want hell. They won't. They will not want it. That's why the Bible says he cast them into the fiery furnace. That's why the Bible says he will hurl them and throw them into the fiery furnace. And what will they do? They will not repent. What will they do? They will gnash their teeth and they will cry out against the Lord. That is not remorse. That's a temper tantrum of rebellion. That's what's being pictured. Like they gnash their teeth upon Stephen. So what you're seeing is the song is telling you this isn't simply a bad military decision to get caught in the middle of the sea. This is the sovereign hand of God bringing and hurling them into his judgment that they were due. Now, the amazing thing is that's where we ought to be. But at the cross, the wrath of God was hurled upon Jesus in our place. And he drank that cup to the bottom that we could have everlasting life. So here is, but here we have Miriam identified, the sister of, of, um, of Aaron. And Aaron is what? The brother of Moses. Now, Pastor, why don't they say Miriam, the sister of Moses? Well, that'll show up in another text. But they're not doing it here because what is she doing? She is, she is providing. You remember her leadership back by the Nile River, setting up the foster home? You remember that? She's still leading. Here she steps up as a leader again. This time, Aaron is leading the worship and the praise of God with the song of Moses. And now, um, and now Miriam, the sister, the older sister. Now we know she's older. Let's begin to place this. You got Moses, you got Aaron. Moses, uh, Moses is how old? Eighty. Eighty. Very good. Aaron is how old? Eighty-three. He's eighty-three. Now, if Miriam is old enough to negotiate with Pharaoh's daughter, she's got to be older than Aaron, right? So what we've got, I think we can come to a conclusion that of the three, Miriam is the oldest. And as Aaron is leading in the worship and praise of God with the song of Moses, then Miriam steps up as a leader to take the women out and they take up the song as she leads the women into the worship and praise of God at this moment. With, I know she wasn't Presbyterian, she had a tambourine and obviously wasn't Presbyterian, she was dancing, but, um, you know, how many, <laughs> how many Presbyterians can dance on the head of a pen? <laughs> 
uh, I don't know, but what are they holding hands to begin with for? I mean, you can't do this is a this is an amazing thing that we have to ask ourselves about this worship service. But I won't go any further than that. But all I did notice is when those drums got to beating up here, I was watching Dr. Ken Berg dancing up here. You may not saw him, but I see him. I watched John Haynes dance every Sunday up here. So I and I'll sway every once in a while. But here are the tambourines. Here is the giving praise to God. And she leads the women out. And the women follow her. And she, as she's exercising this leadership, uh, bringing the women to another place of praise in the concert of giving thanks to God for all that he has done. And then we're told something else. We're told not only is her origin. Can I just say one more thing to y'all? We know. Can I do one more thing? Would you keep your Bibles right here? No, you can leave this. Just go back with me to Exodus chapter 5 for a moment. Go back with me to Exodus chapter. Uh, Exodus chapter 5. We've got some amazing things that we have found out um, about, um, I'm sorry, chapter 6. Go with me to Exodus chapter 6, and, and we have the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. Go down to verse 16. These are the names, but I'll tell you what, before I read this, did you know that if, now follow this, I'm going to my, remember last week Samson does riddles? Okay, I'm going to riddles. Got a riddle for you? If Moses had been born, if Moses had been born after he lived, he would never have been born. Okay, so let me say that again. You ready? If Moses had been born after he lived, he would never have been born. Now, what in the world am I saying? All right, now go back with me to Exodus chapter um, 6 and verse 19. Uh, sorry, verse 16. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Merari. The years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their, clan, by their clans. The sons of um, the sons of Kohath, Amron, Hisar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Meerai, Mahalai, and Mushai, these are the, these are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife, Jochebed, his, what? Father's sister. So that means he married who? His aunt. So he married his aunt. Jochebed married, um, uh, Amram married Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, and then the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. So now you got the answer to my riddle, don't you? Moses was the first author of Scripture through which we get not only the moral law, and the, and the, uh, uh, and the, we get the moral law, we also get the ceremonial law, which would have meant that, that now introduces the law against incest. 
And this would not have been allowed. So if somehow Moses had been born after he had lived, he would never have been born. Because when he lived, he gave the law that would have ruled out of bounds his marriage up until that point. But before the law came, that marriage was not out of bounds. In fact, you go obviously back to the garden and you've got uh, brothers marrying sisters back in the garden. So here is this, um, here is this, uh, you find out the names of Moses and Aaron. Sister is Miriam and you find out their father and mother, Jochebed and Amram and Jochebed and you find out they are of the tribe of Levi. So that's what is established. Now, what have we have learned about Miriam and Exodus chapter 15? Here's what you learn. You learn two things about her calling. One, she's a leader. Two, she's a prophetess. In your Bible, that is not a common calling. As far as I can see, there's only three others in the Old Testament and two uh, references in the New Testament. Not only is Miriam a prophetess, that is one whom God uses to speak forth truth. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily one through whom came uh, canonical revelation, but a prophetess can be small p, one who speaks forth truth. So she was a prophetess. What were some other female prophetesses? In the Old Testament. Well, all of you now know Deborah was one, right? You remember that? When we studied Deborah's life? So you've got Miriam. You've got Deborah. You've got another prophetess named Noadiah. What a name. Noadiah. And then you've got another prophetess that I always remember because my great-great-grandmother had this name. Huldah. So you've got Huldah, you've got Noadiah, you've got Deborah, you've got Miriam, and uh, those are the ones listed for you in the Old Testament. You go to the New Testament, you have Christmas is coming, Anna is a prophetess, and then you've got the daughters of Philip were called prophetesses, and we don't know how many daughters there were, but they were called prophetesses as well. So her calling is a leader and a prophetess. Those are the two dynamics of her calling as she would serve the Lord. While we've got some great things that we're learning about her, we need to see one more thing. Miriam, like every other leader we have studied in this series has feet of clay. And God's work of grace is glorious, but it is a work of grace in a jar of clay, with feet of clay. And it makes itself evident in the book of Numbers. Would you go in Numbers chapter 12 with me? Numbers chapter 12. The book of Numbers contains some challenges against, various challenges against Moses' ministry. And one of them came right from his own leadership team, which was also his family. You find in Romans, I mean Romans, you find in Numbers chapter 12 and verse 1, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. 
for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward and he said, Hear my words. Is there a prophet among you? I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against him, and he departed. You know, just kind of stop there. I'm not quite through yet, but folks, and I'm not saying this as self-protection because I'm a pastor, but... While we are never called to treat any leader as infallible or on the level with God, when God calls someone and their hand is upon them, one ought to always be careful how they speak about them and to them. The Lord's anointed. And here they have spoken about him and against him. And he said, why would you do that? Do you not know this is a prophet that I don't send visions to? I talk to him face to face, mouth to mouth. I don't give parables and allegories and riddles. I write my word with my finger upon the stone to give it to him. This is my servant Moses. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And when the cloud was removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous. That's a sign of judgment. Like snow, in other words, already advanced. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my repentance has taken place. <laughs> Repentance has taken place. Oh, my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Not only is there repentance, but there is confession. And not only confession of sin against Moses, but sin against the Lord. And Aaron has confessed it. Then he intercedes. Let her not be as one who is dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses then cried out to the Lord, O oh God, please heal her. Please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be ashamed? Should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. And after that, after that, the people set out from Hazeroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. So here he brings judgment upon them because of what they had done. Now, do you see the occasion or the excuse was Moses has married a Cushite woman. 
Now, who was this woman? We have no idea. Well, we have one possible idea, but we don't know. For, she's never named. This is the only time she's mentioned. Now, but this could be his wife. Does anybody remember his wife's name? Zipporah. Because Zipporah was a what? She was a Midianite. She was a Midianite, which was cousins that come through the line of Abraham, but uh, not in the covenanted line. And in Habakkuk 3.7, Cushites and Midianites are handled together as one. So it may be referring to Zipporah, whom we know he married when he was in the wilderness and became a tender of sheep from age 40 to age 80. The one who had gone back from him when he went to deliver the people from bondage because she was, uh, because he had, uh, in obedience to God, circumcised his son. So it may have been Zipporah. It may have been a second wife or a wife after Zipporah. And Zipporah may not be on the scene any longer. But we find out pretty quickly. That was just the excuse. The real issue was jealousy and envy. That was the real issue. Why is everybody giving Moses such favor? Didn't God speak to us? Didn't God use us? Why aren't we getting credit like Moses is getting credit? So they manufactured, and that so often happens. They manufactured a reason in order to rebel against Moses. But God will not be fooled by our nuances and our wordsmiths. And so he immediately brings them before him and he brings judgment upon them. Aaron confesses. You can see him with the word Lord. He calls Moses now Lord. No question as to who is to be in authority by God's appointment. He confesses that he has sinned. And he pleads for mercy, not only for himself, but also for his sister. And Moses requires no cajoling at all. He is ready to intercede. In fact, two times he calls upon the Lord, heal her, please, please heal her. And the Lord says, yes, I will, but not without some consequences. The people need to know I will not tolerate this rebellion against me by rebellion against the one who I called to lead them. God can deal with him, but you may not. And therefore, he says, we will at least do what would have been done if the father had disciplined her. She would have been shut away for seven days. Then lepers are shut away for life until they die, but she will only be shut away for seven days, and then she would be healed. So what is the legacy? Let me just give you a couple of thoughts about Miriam. Number one, let me give you three thoughts uh, in conclusion here. Number one is this. Miriam is a great example of godly female leadership. She is a great example of godly female leadership. Now, I understand the faulty. I understand her faltering, and I'll deal with that. But in the course of what you see in Exodus 2, in Exodus 5, in Exodus 15, in that course of life, 
you see her exercising what we call complementary relations, complementary leadership. As she comes alongside Moses and Aaron, she comes alongside them to provide the leadership that God has gifted her to do as a prophetess and as a leader. As she takes the women out. Now, folks, we need that today. We need female leadership. You not only need fathers of the faith, you need mothers of the faith. We need both. But what we don't need is the competition of female and male leadership. Where males attempt to do female leadership and females attempt to do male leadership. Not only are we created different, we are gifted differently. And certainly, leadership always has overlap. But there is something distinctive about the female leadership that God calls forth. And you see it with Deborah that takes the worship to another level when she leads the women out with the tambourine and the dance in the worship service and begins to speak forth God's word to them as a prophetess. But then you not only see her as a leader, you see her as a prophetess. But a a second thing that I want you to see is she is always laboring to find solutions in her leadership. What's the solution for Moses as a child, for her mother, for her father? What's the solution? She's constantly trying to find the solution. Some people, when they're in positions of leadership and teaching, as she was, many times they just create problems Instead of solve problems. She solved problems. She came up with solutions. Thirdly and finally. She's a sinner. Saved by grace. (laughs) She had at least one moment we know. Where she wanted to be. She wanted Moses position. Not the position God had called her to. But she wanted Moses' position. And if that meant exposing her brother Moses along with the conspiracy of Aaron, she was willing to do it. But thankfully, in God's grace, she and Aaron came to repentance. And Moses, in his compassion, interceded for them so that they would be restored. I want you to see constantly every leader God calls. He gives them strengths, and they have weaknesses. That's why we need plurality of leadership. And if you're a leader, always be transparent. Always be accountable. Don't develop another way of life. Always be there because it's so easy for Satan to get the foothold of jealousy or envy or self-importance. Always be accountable. And then praise God as he would work in our lives so that we could walk in obedience to him. Well, dare I say at this moment, that's why I am glad that God convicted me. Now, again, you don't have to be a Presbyterian to get to heaven. But I am grateful God convicted me of the biblical model of plurality of leadership and accountability. Because that's the blessing Not only for God's people, it's the blessing for the leader, lest they fall with feet of clay as a jar of clay. Let's pray. God, thank you for the time we've been able to be together in your word. 
Thank you for the privilege to unfold the scriptures together by the Spirit of God. And we pray only for the glory of God. Keep growing us, not simply with more knowledge about those in the Bible, but with lives changed because of what we see that you do with your word and your spirit in their lives. Do it in ours. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.